So here's the game plan for tonight. We're going to go back to Matthew 11 and finish verse 27. Um, specifically wanting to address the last phrase in the, in, in the verse, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. The, the difficulty in doing that is that it's hard to separate it out from just, well, it's hard to separate it out from that whole verse, let alone that whole section. Um, so what we're going to look at it in detail, but also with a, a, a wide view as well. If you notice that I put on the top doctrines in focus, and we mentioned these last Sunday morning, Right, that as we as we're working through Matthew eleven twenty five through thirty, these are doctrines that are sort of undergirding the whole thing, um, doctrines that help us see and understand what's taking place in verses twenty five through thirty. When we say the word doctrines, we just we just mean teachings, like almost like a subject. Like you could say that you went, if you were studying math, you're studying a certain doctrine or teaching, and it's math. So sort of basically, that's all we're talking about here. Um, three very, very, very foundational uh, doctrines of the scriptures that are in focus in this section: the doctrine of God. And when we talk about the doctrine of God, we're thinking about holiness, righteousness, sovereignty. Uh, even in that, I didn't put there cre- uh, creator, sustainer, and thinking right opposite of that, we've got the doctrine of man, creature, out of his creation, but not just a creature, but fallen, um, cursed in sin, and then how, when we think about the doctrine of man, not just that they're sinful, but how that sin nature affects them. Right, that it's not just they're sinners, but to what degree? Um, so the idea of total depravity that 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 says sin has affected every aspect of a person. Not that we're as bad as we can be, but that all aspects of the 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 human, the mind, the will, the affections, the um, the heart. I'm sort of saying redundant phrases there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Every aspect is even our physical bodies are affected by our sin nature and they're decaying and, and dying. So then, then the third one, the doctrine of salvation. What what is that? But that's the connecting God and man, right? That it's solving the problem of of that which which has affected man's relationship with God. The doctrine of salvation shows us how man is reconciled back to God. Um, and out of that, we talked last week, last Sunday, about the the operation of God, the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all operating for the sake of that salvation. 
right? We don't just think about Jesus doing something. We don't just think about God saving. But we, as we look through Scripture, we see that there is a there's an uh, there's a role that each person in the Trinity plays in accomplishing and applying salvation. Um, and then when Then you've got to think sort of about the idea of how faith plays in that salvation. And, of course, we wrote, I wrote there justification by faith. So those, those three things are, are, are in the background and um, are helping us understand what's taking place in, in Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Now, I put this in that little gray box to help you think about what's – being said in Matthew 11, specifically what we're going to look at tonight, 27, and how it also connects to 28. So we just said that the doctrine of salvation, we'll just say salvation or redemption, is the the work of God to, to reconcile man back to himself. Another way you could – there's so many ways you could say salvation – and one is God's rest. Um, you think about Israel, and you think about Hebrews chapter 3, and how there was a generation that God would not let enter into his rest, right? It wasn't just that they were not allowed to enter into the, into the promised land, but he was saying because of their disbelief that they were going to be kept from God's rest. And... You can see it in Matthew 11:28, because Jesus, in his uh, in his invitation, "Come to me," ultimately ends in, "I will give you rest." So when we think about salvation, redemption, we can, uh, especially in the context of this section, we can understand it as being in God's rest. Now. I wrote this little box here because what this basically shows is verse 27 and 28 together. To be in God's rest, you need verse 27, which declares God's gracious revelation, which is really going to be the focus of what we're going to talk about tonight. But also be in God's rest, you need verse 28, a genuine response. So verse, both realities are necessary, and both realities show up in, in Matthew 11, specifically 27 and 28. So today our focus is this gracious revelation, okay, this gracious revelation. Sunday, Christmas Eve at 11 a.m., we're going to look at verse 28. The call and response is what our focus will be this coming uh, Lord's Day. So, with that intention, to focus on gracious revelation, there um, we're going to look at the necessity of revelation, the mode of revelation, and then the determining factor of revelation. I really don't know if we're going to be able to get through this or not, but um, we'll, we'll start. So... We, we're we're going to understand salvation. We have to understand what this gracious revelation is about. 
But before we need to do that, we have to make sure that we understand that there is a that revelation is absolutely necessary for salvation. Revelation is absolutely necessary for salvation. So what is revelation? And we've we've done this, so we won't spend much time on it. But it's uncovering truth, right? It's it's un, uh, uh, removing what has been concealed. Um, but we have to understand it's not just making it visible, but it's also giving understanding at what you're seeing. It's not just by the eyes, but it's also by the mind and the heart. Matthew 11, this whole section, um, is showing us, especially verse 25 and then 27, is that God is doing this very thing. He's not just showing, but he's giving understanding. He's revealing or choosing to reveal, as verse 25 and verse 27 says. Um, revelation is necessary for the for salvation. Um, we'll see here a little bit more why in a minute. But you can also think about uh, John... John chapter one, two, and three, when you get the uh, you get this great introduction to John that says how the the uh, the word is God was God and was with God, then the word became flesh. But we also see that the word is the light of the life of men. The light comes into the darkness. Kids, when you turn the light on in a dark room. Bright. <laughs> Thank you. And now you can see what's in it. Right? So light, when we see light in the scriptures, we have to understand that we're talking about revealing. Revelation takes place with light. But where is that light being revealed? In the darkness. So you, yeah... Or it could be the unknown, into the unknown. Right, and so, man, there was something that we said Sunday. So, when you're when you're in the unknown, you're in the dark, right? That's like a statement that we use. So, and that that's that's the reality. So, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna as we move along, we're gonna touch more about what how man is in the dark. Just hit on that here in just a second. Um, but there's another another aspect. If you just flip a page or two over to Matthew 13. So when we hear about revelation or light and darkness, we're thinking, okay, when we see about when we hear about light and darkness, we think about revelation, but we also understand um, as Richie said, there's a spiritual component to it. Matthew 13:16, as Jesus is telling the 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 disciples why he speaks in parables, and then looks to them and says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, it would make no sense if he was just acknowledging that they can physically see or hear. We understand that they can physically see or hear. But he's suggesting that they have spiritual eyes that see and spiritual eyes that hear. What does that mean? Giving them understanding 
letting them see the the spiritual truth that's being laid out in the parables. Um, so, okay, we talk about revelation. We're talking about the not just the uncovering, but the granting of understanding. Um, why is revelation necessary for salvation? And this is this is one one thing I want you y'all to understand. Um, all of Matthew 11 is Jesus saying, I've shown myself to you. I've shown myself to you. I've shown myself to you. John the Baptist has been telling you about me over and over again. I'm preaching. He's preaching. I'm walking around doing miracles and doing this. And then he says, but you're rejecting me. You're rejecting me. Well, verse 25 through 27 explains to us, because God has not truly revealed these things to all those who are rejecting him. The rejection that's taking place in Matthew 11 is connected to the lack of revelation or revealing that God has withheld from them. Um, in chapter 11, he, sa- he, he says this generation is like children who are not responding to other children playing or making songs, playing games and making songs in the marketplace. They're not responding. They call John a demon. They say that he that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. They see, but they do not see. They hear, but they do not hear. And then immediately following, we see Jesus thank the Father that he's hidden these things to some and revealed to others. And in our verse, it says that the Son carries on this, and he chooses to reveal the Father to some. Now, I want to show you something in Ephesians 4. I want to show you this process, but starting from the end of it, the end of the revelation, the revealing. If you look at Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul gives the definition of what it looks like to have been given revelation. But he also says what it looks like to not have been given this revelation. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So when we see Gentiles, we can assume unbeliever. In the futility of their minds. They walk in the futility of of their minds. You shouldn't. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. Buzzwords there. Darkened understanding. Alienated from the life of God. Oh, no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Again, a lack of knowledge due to the hardness of the heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensualities, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So the difference between the the believers of Ephesus and the Gentiles is knowledge and understanding. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Now... If we make our way backwards to chapter 2, we can sort of deconstruct this revelation, this revealing, this thing that God has done to the saints of Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How... Hey... Kids, how well can a dead man see? None. None. What does he know? None. Nothing. What does he understand? Nothing. Nothing. Right? So the condition of a person prior to any work of God is dead in the trespasses and sins. But you get down to verse 4. You see, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So from dead, with no sight, no understanding, no wisdom, to alive. Alive. Now here's the thing I'm sort of projecting to... The next section. The thing that brings life is the word. Okay? The thing that brings life. And I don't, when I say the word, I don't mean in a general sense the Bible. I mean the word of God. And when I say the word of God, I mean his speaking. How did he create life in the beginning? By speaking. How does these saints in Ephesus go from being dead to alive? Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Verse 13. In him you also, that would be in Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, where does the word of truth have to come from? It has to come from God. It has to be God's word. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So here, here's, here's what I, I'm wanting you to grasp, is that revelation only comes... Through the divine word of God. But not only does it reveal, but it gives life. And not only does it just reveal and give understanding, it has a a grasping and calling effect. Um, 
it doesn't just say, oh, you know, but it once understanding and knowledge is given, once eyes are open, ears are open, uh, minds are open, it is then drawing that person to Christ. Um One thing, right on your piece of paper, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 through chapter 2, verse 16 for some homework. Because this, this is the point that I'm, I'm trying to make to conclude this idea of the necessity of revelation. That revelation that saves, revealing, God revealing to someone is equal to what we would call the divine calling of God. Saving revelation, revealing that saves, is equal to a divine calling. And just as you go and you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, don't, don't do it now, but in your time, watch how... Watch how... Paul begins by talking about how he preaches the word and he preaches the word of the cross of Christ and that it is the word of the cross that has power. But not only is the word of the cross just have power, but it has power to call or to bring out truth, wisdom, righteousness, and justice. I'm sorry, and redemption within those whom hear the word of Christ and are called. And if you look through the rest of chapter 2, you see that that not only is the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the word, calling, granting wisdom and understanding, but it's actually connecting you to the mind of God, taking you from a natural person to a person who can discern the thoughts of God. That's revelation. That is the divine call from God. Absolutely, 100% necessary for salvation. Okay. The next, the next major heading... God also be a doctrine as well, right? What's that? What you just talked about. Right. Particular doctrine within scripture. Yeah. The call the chosen. Yeah, and since that's at the top of your page. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna yeah, we're gonna definitely be kind of falling into that here in just a second. Um so the next big heading is the mode of revelation. So, okay, the necessity of the revelation, no one knows the Father or the Son. You're outside of that knowledge. It needs to be revealed. Well, how is that to be revealed? You're understanding that you are outside and must be brought in. What's the mode or the median or the, the means to which that revelation comes? Well, from Matthew 11, 27, it's the Son the mediator. Because we see in verse 27, 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, is handed all things over to his Son. And we see that the Son will do the will of the Father. He will make known the Father to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The immediate context of, of God the Father handing all, handing all things over to the Son is the Father's sovereign rule, choice, and election that is found in his good pleasure and will. Verse 25, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So the mode of revelation is this mediator. The mediator is the son between God and man. See, when we think when you think of mediator, sometimes we just think about Jesus dying on a cross. But the role of the son as mediator is exponentially larger than just dying on a cross. Right? When we when we when we only think of God or the son Jesus as being mediator by dying on the cross, we leave out the righteous life of Christ. Um but even if we add that in and we say, yeah, even just the righteous life of life of Christ was needed for him to be a perfect sacrifice, we're still leaving out the fact that the righteous life of the mediator was needed to credit in your account righteousness. Because it's not just about having sins forgiven, but it's also about being counted as righteous. So not just removal of the negative, but then a filling of the positive. You don't just go to heaven because your sins are forgiven. You go to heaven because you've been forgiven and counted righteous based on the righteous life of Christ. Um, but the the role of mediator goes further than even the the righteous life and the sacrificial death. But in our section here in 11.26, we're seeing that God the Father isn't just sending him to go and live and die, but he's delivered to the Son the authority to give life and judgment to whom he wills. This is confirmed in two other passages. Um, Say that again. What did you say? The last couple of sentences. So the, the Father didn't send the Son just simply to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. But he has, he has, in delivering all things into his hand, positioned him now to be the one who gives life and judgment. Right, and uh, this is real heavy in John, John 5 and 17, both of them, yeah. And I've got both of those written down here. So, so you think that happened in eternity, past, present, future? Now you're I getting. So no, no, but that I'm not touching that because <laughs> that is a bugaboo. I, I mean, it really is. But and there are great 
great debates on when that delivery or that handing over is. To the, to the, it doesn't, but man, the, the word heretic flies out so fast in that conversation. And among people who, who are like-minded, it, it's, a, it is a, it's a bugaboo. Because what you're dealing with is the eternality of the Son. You're dealing with, well, the Son can't be lesser than the Father at any point. Right, Because if there's a point where he didn't have the ability or the authority to do these things, then he was lesser than the Father, which would make him not God as the Son. And so it really gets into some tension. But at the same time, there is this real aspect that there is this handing over. If I had to, if I had to put an emphasis on what this is telling us, it's that... The handing over is a bit – it's not this This you didn't have this and now you do, but it's the father is now putting this in the hands of the son to take care of until, until the end of time, right? So the father's like, you're here on earth now where, where, where I've sent you to do the will of the father. I am – I'm stepping back and saying, you do your thing. Um, he's handed over the authority. He's handed over the, 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 um, the ability to judge, to give life. Um, and at some point, at the consummation of all things, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it says he will hand it back. Um, and that would be at the end of time, right? When 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 the when he has completed his task. Mm-hmm. Did he always ask for constant counsel throughout this whole time from the Father? Yeah, on on in his in his earthly life. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. And constant so he counsel. and the thing that that's the thing, and it's and it's not just it's not just counsel, but it's also this unity of I'm not going to do anything apart from what has already been willed by the Father. This and that's a perfect example in Matthew 11, because in 25 you see this that Jesus thanks the Father in verse 25 that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So that's the will of the Father. But in verse 27, as He's handed all things over to the Son, you now see that the Son has the authority to reveal to whom He chooses. And the thing is, is it's going to be to the same people that the Father has determined. And Scripture also says the Holy Spirit goes to and fro where He wills. Right. And chooses whoever He wills. Right. So. And 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 what that's what that's bringing us to is to this orthodox view of the Trinity right. that all that all three have uh, distinct roles, but yet they're all of not just one essence, but to to accomplish one will. Right. Yeah, it's good. Good conversation. I don't think anybody crossed the line there. <laughs> no, I think I think we're all I think we're all safe right now. So just it just just yeah just so you you can hear it and you can hear this in John five. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Father has this ability 
this authority, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Right? And then you sort of see the outcome that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I said, well, we'll stop there for now. What verse are you on? That's John 5, 21 through 23. And then John 17, again, says similar things. Um, I'll save that one for later because I, I really want to come back to that one here in a minute. Um, so the mode of revelation is the Son because He is the mediator between God and and man. But to break down the mode a little bit further, and I've already touched on this, the means that which the Son does this is through the proclamation of the Word of God. It's the gospel, is the way revelation happens. I'm not going to reiterate this too much, but again, I want you to see that, and I'm just going to read this, and this might be something to jot down. The gospel delivers the life-giving seed that not only brings knowledge, but also understanding, and also faith, and also obedience. The gospel has the power to deliver life. It's not just a communication of information, but it is a seed that implants and brings forth spiritual life which is the opposite of spiritual death, which comes with the blindness and the lack of knowledge. So the gospel not only transfers information, but it also brings life, knowledge, understanding, faith, and obedience. Look quickly at 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a there, you, could, you could read 1 Peter and study 1 Peter for the rest of your life and never exhaust how wonderful this book is. So notice in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again or begotten, might, your translation might say, to a living hope. So born again. Now, what, what has happened? God the Father, through Jesus Christ, has caused us to be born again. Now look at verse 22. Again, we're thinking about the mode of revelation, which is actually the mode of salvation, the means that which it comes to us. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So truth implies a revealing of or a revelation of knowing what's true. Uh, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. He gives, uh, he gives a, a command there. But verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Well, what's that? What's that seed that's caused us to be born again? Through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of Christ is power. Right, The gospel is the power, Romans 1. But then he says, and then he speaks to our flesh, and, and uh, the, the, the finite, the 
finitude, I guess, of our flesh, but the in the uh, eternality of the Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So that's the one. I, that's like all that shows you that the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, in him you also, once you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed and were when were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This word that is good news that is preached to you not only is is telling you information, but it is being implanted into you as an imperishable seed bringing forth obedience to truth, brotherly love. And as he would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, as Brother Dan's been teaching through, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. To his own glory and excellency. The gospel of the Son of God, or you could go to Romans 10. Read there, too. Oh, so I'm still in 1 Peter. Yeah, we could stay there forever. Yeah. 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 I mean, Romans 10, 17, it, you got to think about it in this context. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That implanted seed, that that life-giving power that comes from the gospel. So when when the word of Christ is proclaimed, something happens when God reveals the truth of the gospel within that person. It brings them from death to life, from blind to sight, from uh, deaf to to hearing, from mute to speaking, from lame to walking, all from the proclamation and hearing and receiving the gospel. This is the mode of revelation. And this is what Jesus is doing. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son chooses to reveal. This is the mode. This is what the mediator is doing. But what is that determining factor? The last section. The determining factor of revelation. So, to whom the Son chooses to reveal, what determines that choice? What's the determining factor? Well, it's just simply <laughs> grace. Like it's grace. It's already been determined now. Right. In the past. Exactly right. But my point is, is that that determination is based on grace. That's what I mean. And love, which is grace. right. That takes us back to so you're 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 raising love. So that that's why Ephesians two four and five is so good. But God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And so there you've got the connection of grace and love and mercy, right? All of that. That is the determining factor as opposed to verse 28, come to me, right? And so... The, the response isn't the determining factor, but it is the, 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 the will 
of the Father and the Son, of choosing or of showing grace to whom he will. Now, I, I got ahead of myself in that. But that is irresistible grace. Is it, is it not within itself? Yes. Right. Cannot, right. Exactly. Uh, so what is happening is when... when God is granting saving revelation or is or is divinely calling this is an act of grace. This is an act of unmerited favor. That's why we say amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That's amazing grace. Or and can it be? Um my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's light. That's revelation. I woke the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So, why is grace the determining factor for whom God reveals these things to? And it has to go back to the, the realization of mankind's current relationship with God. No one knows the Father. No one knows the Son. Because why? Well, ultimately you could just say sin, and that's right. But if you break it down a little bit, sin has separated mankind from the Godhead because of their offense. It happened initially when Adam sinned and was removed from the garden. But it continues day by day, person by person, as in Adam they continue in that sin. But also, number two, because they have been blinded by the effects of sin. This is a point we've ran home over and over. Not only have they been affected in the spiritual eyes, but number three... Their hearts have been darkened and hardened. Their affections for God have ceased because of the effect of sin. Again, this goes back to the doctrine of man and, and, and sin and depravity. God, I'm sorry, grace is determined... And granted by the will of God. Grace is determined and granted by the will of God. Matthew 11 clearly teaches that the recipients of grace, of eternal life, of saving knowledge and understanding, are determined by the sovereign will and choice of the triune God. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the, the Son. Sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And the one in John 17 that I didn't read earlier, Since you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, determined by God there. And again in John 5.21, the Son gives life to whom he will. I use the word determined in this section because it's a biblical word. It might not seem like it, but it is. 
Um, it's a biblical word that's used to express the manifestation of the will of God. When you get into Acts 2 and you hear Peter proclaiming his in his first sermon uh, that the cross of Christ was um, – I can't even quote it now. Were you going to quote it? Acts 2.23, as he's speaking of who Jesus is, and he says to the crowds, uh, This Jesus delivered according to the the definite plan. That would be the determined plan. The the, the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. And in Acts 4, he uses the same – Peter uses the same word as they, they see the very same thing, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined or determined to take place. And then you use that word again in Romans 8, 29 through 30, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and Ephesians 1, all making point to the will of God in salvation. But I want to bring all this together and close with a passage from Exodus and a quote from a commentator. Go to Exodus 33. And when we talk about when we talk about these things, we have to understand that this isn't new. This is how God has always operated. Always. And as you as you hear this interaction between Moses and 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 Yahweh, beginning in verse thirteen, we'll skip around a little bit here. Uh, well, the sentence right before thirteen, he says, "Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor, grace." In my sight. Verse 13. Now therefore, this is Moses speaking to God. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me, reveal your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Now look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Reveal it to me. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And what is he saying? The very act of of revealing himself is determined by his desire to be gracious. And to whom is he to be gracious to? To whom he will. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And of course we know Paul picks this up in Romans 9, but we'll have to come to that one at another time. 
Let me read this quote to you that sums it all up real well. All of these things up real well. The exclusive communion between the Father and the Son is the essence of their relationship. The Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father. For anyone else to share in this knowledge is a matter of revelation, and as such is not a natural right. No one says, I deserve to know God. No one can say that. It's not a natural right, but it is a matter of divine choice. Thus, God's sovereign initiative in Revelation set out in Matthew 11, 25 through 26 is applied specifically to our knowledge of God. It does not come naturally. Dead man don't see. Dead man don't hear. It depends on God's choice, or more in context of Matthew eleven twenty seven, the Son's choice. Thus Jesus unequivocally describes himself and his will as the key to man's approach to God. There is no other way. Okay, meaning, if you are in Christ, if you believe, if you're a Christian, it is by the grace of God that you've been chosen as a recipient of his grace out of what determining factor? The good pleasure of his will. Simple. While you deserved to remain in darkness, as all mankind does, the, as we said earlier, the rich mercy of God out of his great love, even when you were dead in your trespasses, has made you alive in Christ Jesus. This is the gracious revelation that is ne- necessary to enter into God's rest. And so, come to me is the mode, is the invitation that's given, right? And the only way, the only way to the Father is to respond to the Son. That's it. It's the only way. And this is what we'll pick up this coming Sunday. Uh, Any 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 discussion thoughts